Well, today we're going to tackle um, the, this issue of the Old Testament canon. Okay, canon is a, is a later term meaning measuring rod. Um, it's a Latin term. So, so and, and it's come to refer to those books which are regarded as holy, holy scripture. So we remember this, we speak about our Old Testament canon and the New Testament canon. Um, and so, and so I, I looked at my little paragraph and said there's two erroneous views of canonization of the books of the Bible. One is the, the one that, um, that, uh, um, that we kind of reject easily, or, or not so, yeah, pretty, pretty easily. And, and that's, the, that's the idea that, that in case of both the Old and the New Testament canons, there is this like, group, and there's this, like, this hodgepodge of books, and they read it, and because of a, of a, uh, a set of assumptions, they, then they toss books left and right out until you get to the, to the core called the canon, right? You know, um, especially when we speak about the New Testament canon, you have these false views that, that the church, which had become the opposite of Jesus, um, and that, uh, you know, had created this patriarchal, dogmatic system, and therefore these 27 books match that. Um, now, now, the truth of the matter is, is that the, the issue of the canon, though, is uh, it's a little bit messy because it's not, it's not extremely simple, but it's also not this uh, process where you're, you're, uh, um, you're, you know, these vast number of books and you're tossing books left and right. That's not the case, either Old or New Testaments. Okay. And so, I'm going to stop just a minute. At the corner right here are, are sheets. So for those who are, that, um, yeah, the lesson sheet, you've already missed the hymn, so the lesson sheet is right there. If you haven't got a lesson sheet, grab one. Um, there's going to be a luncheon after the, after the children's program for parents, children, anyone. That's why the table are set up in a funny way right here. Okay, so, um, you know, and, and in either case, the question is not, what books do we toss out? But, but rather, the, the question is, what books are included? Are, are, I mean, why, why should we include this book? That's a better question. Why should we include this book? And so, in, in both cases, it, the, 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 the canon really is pretty settled, and everyone knew what the canon was. And then in the New Testament, I'll go in, we'll talk about the New Testament canon in, in a couple of weeks. And it's a little bit more, more involved process from the New Testament. The Old Testament's pretty, pretty simple. The, the question would be, you know, if you were a Jew in the Holy Land, Judah, Galilee, at the time of Jesus, what's the word of God? There are 39 books of the Old Testament. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the, the Roman Catholic Apocrypha towards the end of... Uh, of, of the little discussion on the, on the canon here, okay. So, so it would have been regarded as, as 22 books. 22 books, we'll talk about that. The minor books we call the, the 12 minor prophets and, um, and judges would have included Ruth and Jeremiah would have regarded Lamentation. So at the time of Jesus, there would have been, uh, uh, you would say the, the law and the prophets. A little bit later on, there will be this three-part division, law, 
prophets and writings that, that you see in my, for example, you go in my office, look at the Hebrew Bible, and it's three divisions, not, not two. Now, there was this group, the Sadducees had only the Torah, only five books of Moses, but the Sadducees were uh, kind of a messed up lot. We're going to talk about the Sadducees in the second part of the lesson today. Okay, so, so at the time of Jesus, there would have been the temple. And in the temple, there would be scrolls. And so if you, if you, if you ask, you know, what, what are the holy writings would have been the scrolls of these 22 books? Okay? And that would have been what is regarded as the word of God. Okay? And so, so after the temple is destroyed then, you need to watch over. You don't have that, that depository anymore. So you have to look over there. And so now the canon actually becomes a list. And that's where you see the 22 listed. And then a little bit later on in Jewish history, becomes 24. Ruth is broken off of Judges, and Lamentations is broken off of, of, uh, of, um, of Jeremiah. Okay? And then, um, and so that's, that's basically the Hebrew Testament. Um, a little bit later on, I don't know if I give you the date. Uh, I, I think I do. Um, yeah, by the fourth century, what, what was called the, the Tanakh. Has anybody ever heard the Tanakh, the term Tanakh? Okay, it, it comes, it's, an, it's a um, T for Torah, N for Nabim, prophets, and K for Kitabim, the writings. Okay, so Tanakh, and so would be the Hebrew scriptures now. And if you look at my Hebrew Bible, that's how it's arranged law, prophets, uh, writings, okay? And so, um, now, there was this, this thought, you know, back, back when they thought, oh, well, the Jews got a hold of, they looked at all the books, and they tossed out books left and right. It would have been taken place at a big council called the Council of Jamnia. No, Council of Jamnia, it was not this big council, it was a rather small gathering. And the chief question is, is were two books, Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs, whether they defiled the hands. Not whether or not they're canonized, or part of the 22, but just when you touch the scroll of Ecclesiastes, are you allowed then to touch, the, for example, the shoe bread in the temple? Or do you have to purify your hands before you're allowed to touch it? It's a rather arcane view of it, right? Um, and so that, that's, that's the chief question. So, so really, what we say is the Old Testament, if you go on to any Jew in, at Jesus' time in the Holy Land, they would agree with our Old Testament. Okay? Questions, comments so far about our, our Old Testament. Now we're going to talk, get into the kind of the history of how we get this Apocrypha that you see in the Roman Catholic Scriptures. Right? Okay. Questions, comments? Okay. Um, so... So one thing to remember, and this is a huge issue, is our language issues, right? The language issue is that in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, and therefore in the, in the churches in the east, the primary language is Greek, Koine Greek. We talked about this. In the west, it will be Latin, okay? And so what happens is the church begins to be divided. Um, in the East, 
of what we call the Old Testament. Now our 39 books is regarded as the Old Testament. However, there was St. Augustine, and, and he is around the year 400 AD. So it's, very, it's 400 years after the time of Christ. Now it's in the West. He's a Latin speaker. And there is now a sharp division, obviously, between Judaism and Christianity. And that that's, that's becomes fairly sharp. You see that happening already in in the New Testament times, um, but certainly that those next couple of generations, and that's one reason, for example, that Easter is not really tied to Passover anymore. It becomes separated. This idea of Christians have are, are totally separated from Judaism, and especially after the destruction of the temple, etc. Like this, and now you're in the West. You're Latin speaking, so you're very cut off from the Middle Eastern culture, and so so Augustine says basically this, that, that what the Jews say are the Old Testament should not determine what the church says in terms of the books of the Bible. Okay, and so therefore he begins to, to use books from the Septuagint, these other books like Tobit, 1st, 2nd Maccabees, uh, Judith, etc. Like, like this. Okay, um, however, um, there was no attempt to call these books canon, canonized. The, the, can, the, the acceptance of the Apocrypha um, happens over time. The Apocrypha, Apocryphal books like Judith, like Tobit, like Ecclesiasticus, like First Maccabees would have been read in churches but not regarded as scriptures. I, I can't give a really good, yes, go ahead Dave. Yes. Yeah. His question is, when are the books of the Apocrypha written? Uh, they're generally speaking, they're written in the intertestamental period, but it's a real good question, and it's, I have not, I do not know the books of the Apocrypha that that well, and that's a kind of a. Uh, you know, big gap in my, my knowledge in terms of being a pastor. I should know the books of Apocrypha because certainly Luther knew the books of the Apocrypha and the early Lutheran fathers knew the books of the Apocrypha. They just did not regard them on the same level as the Bible. Does that make sense? In fact, Luther does this very, very neat thing where the, if you look at the, that Luther's Bible, he would have had Old Testament, New Testament, but in between separated out would be the Apocrypha. Okay, and so I do not know the dates of the apocryphal books. I mean, we are talking about something I, I really do not know. Um, and, and so in preparation for this class, I said, you know, I should start reading the apocrypha a little bit. And so I start reading First Maccabees, but, but my schedule during Advent has swamped me. And so I, I, uh, I've not gone through First Maccabees yet, much less to Tobit or Judith or something like that. So, so, um, and, and so these books, yeah, are, are in there. And so what happens, why is the Apocrypha in the Roman Catholic Bible? It's basically a reaction to Lutheranism, right? And so there's a lot of stuff in the modern Roman Catholic Church that is codified that wasn't codified until after the Reformation. The Council of Trent, which occurs in the 1550s and into the 1560s, is what codifies the Apocrypha as part of Holy Scriptures according to the Roman Catholic Church. Up until this point in time, it is not 
does not have that status, even in the Roman Catholic Church. It was regarded as, as generally profitable, um, and Luther himself regards the Apocrypha as profitable, but just not a level of scripture. And it's basically a reaction to um, Lutheranism that, that the Apocrypha becomes part of the Roman Catholic Scriptures. Yes? In the, in the Apocrypha, probably like 12, 13 books, you know. Yeah, Sirach, I mean, I, okay, there's, yeah. Um, and CPH actually has, has done us a favor. There is a, there is a, a separate volume for the Apocrypha with all sorts of notes and what Luther said about it and gives a background on the books. Uh, and there's also a study guide. So, because it's an area of my, I'm, I'm very ignorant. Another thing I'm, I'm ignorant of is a lot of the church fathers. I've not read Cyril, much of Clement. You know, I did take a, a couple classes for, in my graduate school in church fathers, but it's another area where I'm really, really short of, of knowledge. I've not read, you know, a lot of these, these early church fathers, Christendom, everything like this. Go ahead. It was. I mean, they, it, it was actually essential. This is why these 22 books were in the temple depository, that this is the word of God. They weren't even known about the Apocrypha. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so Jew, I mean, so, so for a Jew in the Holy Land in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, there, there's not even a decision. It, this is obviously not not part of the word of God. And I, I think that's a, um, so, so we think of, again, this vast collection and, they, and they're tossing, but rather they have what they know to be the word of God. And then you have these other books. And, and certainly they would have known about like first Maccabees and stuff like this because they're celebrating Hanukkah, right? But they would not have, have understood that to be the word of God. It was not even a question. And so, so the Old Testament canon is, is actually, the, the Old Testament canon, New Testament canon is going to be a little bit slippier. We'll, we'll go into that, and, um, and definitely I'll have to read up again on it. It's a little bit slippier. Slippier, yes, 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 yes. And I, I'm slow of tongue like Moses, you know, so I need another Aaron, but I'm, I, there's no Aaron to teach for me, so here I am. So, so, um, so this is the, this is a, this is the, our, our text right here. And what I wanted to show you is what, the, what, we, what we call the Old Testament, how it would have been arranged. And you can see by the arrangement, see, that, that we arrange things slightly differently. And, we have a, and this is developed, um, I think, do I have it? Um, yes, by the 4th century, I, I said earlier that the Hebrew Tanakh was 3rd century. By the 4th century, our divisions where we think of the law, the books of Moses, you got history books like First and Second Samuel, Joshua, Judges. Then you have poetry and wisdom, and then the prophets. Our division happens about by the fourth century, and so it's, it's, it's developed. And so, even how you arrange the books changes things. I mean, and and I think when you look at this formation, you notice very quickly the the Torah is only five books. And you got the other 17. Remember, there's 22 books in the original, the Hebrew Bible, because they put all the minor prophets as they regard as one book. You know, all the way from Hosea to Malachi would have been regarded as, they would have had titles on each one. But 
but when you're counting up, you go up to 22, this is what the 22 would have been. You notice the priority of the Torah. And Torah is very, very, very important. Now, there is a passage that, that I'll, I'll point to in Luke chapter 24, where Jesus says, the law, the prophets, and Psalms. So he seems to differentiate the book of Psalms from the law and the prophets. Um, and and, and, and he, again, I'm beg borrowing and stealing from an Old Testament professor who wrote a, a book about the canon of the Old Testament. And he teaches at Concordia, Wisconsin, Andrew, Dr. Steinman. And, and the Psalms though does, do have a special category. One thing I was gonna bring up at some point in time in the class was um, what are the three books most quoted from the Old Testament in, New Test in the New Testament? You can guess one easily, obviously already. Genesis is, one. Genesis is not one of the three. Deuteronomy. Isaiah is one. Deuteronomy. And then Psalms. Psalms. Those are the three. Deuteronomy is very interesting. That the Deuteronomy is that at Jesus' temptation, he quotes the Bible three times, all three times from the book of Deuteronomy. And yet, if you were to, if you were to list in your mind books of the Bible you're most familiar with, how many of you would have Deuteronomy even close to the top of your list? I mean, it, it, it's amazing. And yet, and yet, and yet Deuteronomy is, a, is a, of those, Isaiah and Psalms are the two most, okay? And then Deuteronomy. So more so than, than Genesis, more so than Exodus, more so than Jeremiah. I'm, I'm looking at other books that you think are very prominent in the Old Testament. So, so it's just interesting. Yes, Rich. One more question on the Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Purgatory seems to be from the Apocrypha, although, okay, and again, you're asking, I, it's been a while since I, 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 I looked at the, the, the development of the doctrine of purgatory in the Roman Catholic Church. So it's, it, it is not only, and the Roman Catholic Church is very, very important. There are two sources of authority. One, the scripture, the other is the church itself. And ultimately, who's the head of the church would be the Pope. And so, and so therefore, uh, revelation can be a, kind of an ongoing process. And so it's not only apocrypha, but also the church itself that develops purgatory. And then, and then to an extent, it's, it's rather involved actually how purgatory gets in, involved, it develops. And that's a, it won't be in the background to the New Testament, but that's an that's a interesting thing. And it's really, and this, this whole issue purgatory, by the way, there's sheets at the corner of this table. Uh, uh, it, yeah, put them back there by the coffee fellowship, the, the free will offering. That way people get more money to the offering. Oh, no, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. So, okay, okay. I'm being taped. Sorry about that. Okay, so, um, okay, so let's go into this concept. Oh, I, I do want to talk about is, is one thing. We, we talk about this, and in my office, I have something called the Hebrew Bible, right? And, and it's a... Uh, um, it's, it's more technical term is Biblia Stuttgartgensia. Okay? Um, it's, a, it's a text of the Old Testament that was discovered. I don't, it, I don't know. It's a Masoretic text that was, that was found and, and it was 
was housed in Stuttgart in Germany. I don't know how it got there. I, I have no idea. But uh, uh, the previous one that was supposedly the best one is Leningrad. Leningrad, I think, from Leningrad. I don't know why. So, I, um, so, so the point is, is that is that this text that I'm using from the Hebrew Bible, something called the Masoretic text, these are from like 1000 AD, 1000 AD. The Masoretes developed this system of pointing, so it's like a cheater system for me, okay? The Hebrew has 22 letters of the alphabet. And it's a real simple answer how many vowels there are of those 22 letters, zero, there are no vowels. Well, what's somebody like me going to do? Well, the Masoretes developed a cheater system. It's got little points above and below the letters to show me how to pronounce the words. At the time of Jesus, this is partially, the, the scribes would be not only ones to, 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 to transmit, to copy the scroll of, say, Isaiah or, or, or Judges or Genesis. The scribes also would know how to pronounce the words, okay? And so the reading outline, by the way, reading always was an oral activity in, in, in biblical times. This idea of sitting and reading a newspaper silently, you know, what's that person doing? I mean, it, it would have been to, to read out loud. So, so to know how to, to do that. So the question is, you have these manuscripts in 1000 AD. How can you be sure that this is what Isaiah actually wrote in the year 700 BC, right? Ah. We praise God we, well, for two reasons. One is that the Hebrews and the Jews later on regarded this as the Word of God and, and, and absolutely the Word of God. And so they were extremely meticulous in, in even counting the letters as they copied it and to make sure they had the right number of letters. You know, and so if you copy a whole book and you count the letters, then it better come out to the right number. Okay, and so it's very, very meticulous. But we have this also marvelous thing called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have the entire book of Isaiah. And we can look at it, and, that, and it's 100 B.C. That puts us a lot closer to Isaiah's time, doesn't it? But not only this, but we can compare that with our 1000 A.D. and say, wow, these folks really took care of copying it, it's not, I'm not saying it's 100%, but it's almost 100%. By this way, this, this is a, uh, what do you call it, a red herring, if you ever hear, how can you be sure? Well, how many of you ever heard of Aristotle? Raise your hand, you ever heard? How about Plato? How about Thucydides, Aristophanes? Oh, we have so few documents from ancient times for any of these ancient authors, and almost no copies. And yet, you study Plato, right? You know, I, I had to read Plato in, in Greek in college. We, we're trusting that this is the, what Plato said. But we have so much fewer copies than we have of books of the Bible. It just, it's, just, it's a red herring. In other words, by put up by people who doubt Scripture. So, so don't even buy that one. Yes, Ed? During periods of uh, slavery, whether it was Egypt or No. Okay. Excellent question. So what language were the books of the Bible written in? Is that right? Okay. Um, I can be wrong. 
But as far as I know, all the books of the Old Testament, excepting Daniel, were written in, in Hebrew. Okay. In Daniel, there's a cognate language called Aramaic, which developed from Hebrew, slightly different. Um, and I, I studied Aramaic for two weeks. That's it. So I don't know any Aramaic. So, so I have a hard time if I ever go in the book of Daniel because it's slightly different. And, uh, and, so, and so parts of Daniel are in Hebrew. Parts of Daniel are in Aramaic. Aramaic was kind of developed from, from Hebrew over, over time. And Daniel is very unique because Daniel's ministry lasts a long time. Because remember, Daniel is one of these princes taken from Jerusalem before the destruction of Jerusalem, at least in 597. And he is, a, is a, a, an aristocrat captured by Nebuchadnezzar. And so that's 597. But yet he is part of the Persian court after the Persians take over in 538. So he's got a very long lifespan. And so that, that he would write different parts of his book in different languages shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us because his, his audience has, has changed over, over time. You know, and by the way, this, the, Daniel is the one book that the, that the liberals really want to point to because it looks, it looks like he actually predicts the future and matches what happens under the Maccabean Revolt. So he must have been, somebody put it in the name of Daniel, but wrote it in the, right, the year 1, 130 or 150 B.C. No. Do you know anything about the Jews in Jerusalem at that time that a book written only 20 years before, they say, oh yeah, this is the word of God written 400 years ago. Do you think the Jews in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus would have done that to a new book? No, this is crazy. And Jews all over the place. Not, not just in Jerusalem, but, but widespread. It's, so the book of Daniel is this, it, it's this premise that you can't predict the future. That's why they had to divide Isaiah up into multiple Isaiahs. Because how could Isaiah talk about Cyrus' servant and mention the name Cyrus? Oh, how could you predict the future? And of course, virgin birth, they, they doubt. You know, critics do all this. And, and speaking about this Qumran finding, the scroll of Isaiah, and if you go to, I can't remember which museum it is in Israel, they actually have it open, the scroll, to the end of Isaiah 39, the beginning of Isaiah 40. Why do I say that? Because critics want to say there's at least two Isaiahs, right? Have, have, have any of you ever heard this? You know, one Isaiah or Deuter Isaiah, and even three Isaiahs or stuff like this. Uh, it's just garbage. Um, but there it is. 39 to 40, and what you notice is nothing. Because it just continues on because it's only one book. Now, the critics would say that there should be some sort of big division, stuff like this. No, 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 no. It just goes right on. It's just one book. And so, um, okay, so I, got, I, I have to take occasion to slam those who doubted the Bible over the centuries. And so it's, and there's a lot of ways to do that. And so I, I will. Okay. So, so here we have this Old Testament. At the time of Jesus, you go into the, into, um, so the question of transmission would have been, they, they carefully transcribe, so a scribe, you, you, you do this, and, you, and, you, and they're very meticulous about making sure that, that every letter is, is in place and, and stuff like this, because they, they regard, it would have been scroll by scroll. There's no such thing as what we call a Bible that's bound together, because the, the technology to bind a book was not present. In the, it's much later technology, even after, um, it's, I don't know, even the New Testament documents, say 4th century A.D., I might be a little bit wrong on that, before you can actually have something that we would call a book. Does that make sense? 
you know, because it, it would have had papyrus, but, but in case of the Old Testament, they would have more often used parchment, which is the leather scroll, because it's, it's more important. And you even see this concept of the leather scroll um, with Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes to the king, right? The king is evil. And, the, and he writes a scroll, and, Bar- and um, I think it's Baruch, I think he quotes it to the king, and he just takes his knife and cuts page after page. He cuts, cuts the, the parchment, throws it into the fire. Of course, God is not too happy with this, but it's a, another little illustration of, of, of the ancient times. And by the way, um, what used to be rare is now so common for us, right? I mean, um, how many of you spent time sifting through old papers or junk mail? Has that ever happened? You know, you still get junk mail. So it's amazing, but this concept of, of writing is, is very, very, you know, um, writing utensils and writing materials would have been very, very difficult to come by in the ancient world. Okay. Um, well, we're a little bit behind, work, but that's fine. We, we have a number of weeks, you know. Uh, we will not have class next week. It's going to be just one service, 930. Uh, we'll be back on January 2nd. Um, but we want to talk about um, now is these different types of Jews. And so, so a Jew at the time of Jesus is, is hard to say. Just like uh, um, I, 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 I cringe when somebody says, you know, this is what Americans believe. Well, you know, um, you know, or, or the typical American. Well, what's a typical American? I mean, this is, you know, uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of typical Americans. You know, I, I grew up, my, my next door neighbor growing up, uh, they had fled from communist Cuba. They were Cuban. God bless them, great people. Um, you know, um, my ancestors, uh, or from two different strains, from Norway and Germany, very different. Uh, they got English speakers, you got all sorts of speakers. Somebody who grows up in Montana has an experience of America a lot different than somebody who grows up in, in Queens, New York, right? Or, or, in South, or a native Floridian. There are actually some of those there, you know, uh, that their, their experience. So, so, so to say a Jew at the time of Jesus in the Holy Land there's still a lot to find out. That there, there would have been many types of Jews at that time. So I'm going to go major parties of the Jews, but then I'm going to talk about that there was also probably was this ordinary Jew at the, at the time, okay? So this group called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees um, um, develop basically at in opposition that we trace the roots of it. Remember we talked about this guy Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the Seleucid king, who, who defiled the temple, but also tried to impose um, Hellenistic values and destroy Judaism and monotheism in the Holy Land. Okay, turns the temple into a temple of Zeus for like two years and stuff like this, but also um, there's this Hellenization, in other words, becoming more secularized there was a group of Jews who rebel against this, and they want to be separate. They want to be Jews. They want to follow God's law. Okay. Now, in and of, it, of itself, that is not a bad thing. The root of the Pharisees is actually very good. We're facing this outside world that's pressuring us to give up our religion, and so we're going to stand fast against it. Does that sound pretty good? 
Kind of sounds like the Missouri Senate, right? We're facing this outside world, and we're going to do our best to stand against it. Now, but the Pharisees will go off the, off the rails a little bit, okay? Or actually a lot. If you look at the words of Jesus, actually a lot, okay? So, so the Pharisees develop over time, and eventually, though, they break with the Hasmoneans, the Maccabean rulers, because they regard them as too secularized, and now they become this separate party. <coughs> and there's never a lot of Pharisees, but they have a tremendous influence outside of their numbers because they're like the, the, like the holy men, the teachers, a lot of the rabbis and the synagogues um, throughout the Holy Land would have been essentially reflecting um, a Pharisee teaching. And so Pharisees become outsized um, with their numbers throughout the Holy Land. And they're out in the countryside because they're from the lower classes. <clears throat> they're not from the rich and the powerful, which are basically centered in Jerusalem. And, and so they, they're trying to be separate and trying to be faithful Jews, faithful to the Torah. So here's some of their beliefs. Uh, the Pharisees would have held to all the books of our Old Testament. Okay? Um, but the Pharisees also believed that in addition to the Torah given on Mount Sinai, that God had also given separate law, Torah, that was handed down orally. So they developed these oral law codes. And so they would have had, at the time of Jesus, these oral law codes. And the object of the oral law codes is to set a fence so you don't even come close to breaking the Torah of God. So you create this outside fence, um, and, and so you don't come close. They would have had 613 oral law codes. Now, don't think about that as, as you know, you know, a uh, um, you know, 40-page code times 613. Some of them were rather, rather short and simple, okay? But they would have developed like a code <clears throat> that on the Sabbath day, you, 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 you cannot travel. So what are you supposed to do? Well, earlier in the week, you would set up a designated point and call that your home. And that way, all you're doing is going to your home. So you would have said, you know, so if I go one, one, a certain distance, it would have gone a certain way. And so, so you, you kind of see this thinking, um, this is not Phariseeism, but this was, I, I saw this when I was growing up in Savannah, Georgia. Back then, there was a point in time in which banks were closed, basically, banker's hours, right? You know, um, and so they would have been closed on Saturday. So you would have driven by the Orthodox synagogue in Savannah, Georgia, and the parking lot on Saturday would have been completely vacant. The bank parking lot next door was completely full. So they're walking to synagogue on the Sabbath. And so you had set up, so at the time of Jesus, a Pharisee, a really devout Pharisee, would have set up like two branches, called it a home, about the required number of steps between his destination, and therefore he could walk there and then walk to his further destination and then he would not have violated the number of steps to be taken away from home. Okay, does that make sense? So this type, type, type deal. But you're guarding yourself because you don't want to break the Torah. And, and, and that's kind of an absurd example. A lot of them weren't as absurd about that in terms of keeping the Sabbath law be, being pure. <coughs> Major point, next one, is that they believe in the resurrection of the dead. It's interesting, Paul in the book of Acts pits the Pharisees versus the Sadducees and he basically says, I'm on trial because basically I say that there's the resurrection of the dead. 
And then the Pharisees and Sadducees begin argument, and therefore there's no, no real trial of Paul at that time, right? Okay, and so they, the Pharisees who had believed in angels and orders of angels, um, they would have been very antagonistic towards this outside culture, the secularization that they would have seen all about them with Jews. And they, they, they did not like Sadducees at all. And by the way, um, if you go back to the Maccabean rulers, there was a Maccabean ruler who crucified 800 Pharisees. Well, then um, the next ruler, which was a queen, um, became more partial to the Pharisees and, and a like number of Sadducees were, were crucified. And so it got to be kind of a, 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 a mess right there. So if you want to understand why Pharisees and Sadducees did not get along with each other, it's also, you know, when you got blood spilled, that, that says a lot, right? And so, um, okay, so, so this extreme piety, there would have been different schools of Pharisees, however. Shammai and Hillel, the Shammamites were the ones who were speaking to Jesus. They were the, the real hardcore, and Jesus fought them. Um, However, the Hillel would have been much more temperate, would have spoken a lot more about mercy, et cetera, like this. And, and this has been a tremendous um, dispute among scholars uh, at, recently. And, and I don't want to go into this, but it, it does affect, um, it, it actually affected some, some Lutheran books, like, like the Book of Romans, and, uh, uh, where, where basically some scholars say, well, this picture of the Pharisees as portrayed by Jesus of the Gospels is all wrong. There really were a lot more tendency towards grace and mercy, etc. Uh, accepting no, that, that, that misses the point. There, there are Pharisees and they do try to make everything in terms of the law. And ultimately, all the Pharisees, whether Shammai or Hillel, reject the Messiah who is Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God's, God's Son. Um, and so I mentioned they're part of, part of the common people, and they're very influential, and they become very, very influential once the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. Phariseeism develops what into, uh, what basically into the Talmud and the Mishnah, et cetera, like this, what we see in, in, in Judaism in those early years. And now Judaism develops even from there, and that's a whole other discussion where you get Reformed, Conservative, Orthodox Judaism, and stuff like this in the modern society. But Judaism, post-destruction of the temple, is basically dominated by the Pharisees, okay? And, and in one sense, there is some success because they do keep a separate nature, a monotheistic religion in a pagan world. And that, that, that is actually very important. Now, now, obviously the wrong, you see the Judaizers, um, who, who are not per se Pharisees, but Judaizers opposing Paul, for example, in his missionary journeys and raising up all sorts of uh, opposition to, because they, they, they really oppose Paul, um, but they would have had Pharisee tendencies. But Pharisees would, be in, would have been in the Holy Land itself. I'm in the weeds now. Any questions about the Pharisees? Okay, so countryside, once you go outside of, of Jerusalem, Pharisee, in terms of pious Judaism, that would have dominated, okay? In Jerusalem itself, you see the Sadducees. They control the temple. They're the rich, landed aristocracy, okay? They believe in only the Pentateuch. There's no resurrection of the dead. They reject angels. 
and they're heavily involved with politics. They heavily cooperate with first the Hasmoneans, and then later on, for example, the, the Romans. The high priest would have been a Sadducee. Now, you would have found Pharisees and Sadducees in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is this council that, that kind of rules and, and had limited self-government in, in, in Jerusalem itself. Limited self-government because if something ha happens too big, the Romans would have squashed it, right? Okay, and Sanhedrin's power goes up and down depending on various other, other factors in Judaism. But those are the two major parties that the Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees basically only in Jerusalem, they control the temple. The, the ordinary common people really didn't identify the Sadducees. They, they, they associate themselves, they're the rich, the aristocracy, they do have a lot of power, much more power than their numbers, okay? And Sadducees, obviously, because of their, their association with the temple, after the destruction of the temple, they're basically gone and, and nothing centered in the temple anymore. There's no temple. Okay, Sadducees, Pharisees, wow, and it's 1043. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the people of the land. This is very, very important. Um, now, we see this all the time. Somebody says, well, I'm an LCMS Lutheran. When was the last time you were in an LCMS church? Well, Christmas five years ago. I mean, I, I'm an LCMS Lutheran. You know, in other words, um, to call yourself a Jew doesn't necessarily mean that you're pious at that time. There's this tremendous problem of, of the Hellenization and as well as just an apathy towards religion. And that's true, you know, throughout most periods of history. You know, it, it's just, and you see this, for example, this, this idea that, that America is a Christian country. Well, at the time of the American Revolution, what percentage of the population would have been in church on a given Sunday? On a given Sunday? Was, I think it's 15 to 20 percent. You know, the high point of, of American religiosity is, let's say, 1950s America, in terms of relative population who would have been church on a given Sunday. And so, and so you know, we, we have all these different sayings. And so, for the most part, you know, for example, Luther, you know, one of the, the unknown, un, unsung to tales of Luther, why he writes the catechism, is he sees that the common folk, they just don't care. They just live their lives the way they want to live them. So, so also the time of Jesus. So many people would not have been faithful in terms of, of just following all these things. You would have seen uh, a lot of you know, people borrowing ideas and Hellenization you know, from this Greek culture. You even have in Jerusalem a gymnasium. Now we think of this as a gym, right? Gymnasium at the time of, of the Hellenism is a place where you exercise because the Greeks stressed the beauty of form. So much so that when you exercise, you always exercise in the nude. The Olympic Games were always in the nude. So you would have had a gymnasium, a gymnasium in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus where Jewish youth were out there with Greek youth exercising the nude. In, in, and not only this, but they would do a slight surgical thing and they would, so that it did not look like they're circumcised anymore, to deny their circumcision. And needless to say, the Pharisees were, ah! And so you would have had also a hippodrome where we had the, the, the horse races. So Ben-Hur is not entirely inaccurate. Now, how, how elaborate, how, with size crowds, but would have been a big to-do. So these, and the theater. 
the theater. We, we don't think anything of the theater, but the theater and Judaism are antithetical to each other. And this is very important. We do not do theatrics in a church. We worship the true God. So this is, we do not, we are not a theater. We're the church. And so this is, you know, I always remember reading this in a basic Old Testament textbook. There are no theaters in the Old Testament. There are no theaters in Orthodox Judaism at the time of Jesus. And so you would have seen Hellenization, so there would have been this heavy influence from pagan Greek culture where Jews are compromising um, themselves with the Roman and the Greek uh, way of looking at it. And so this problem of secularizations, and we're at 1046. We do want to talk about the Essenes, so as we get the Dead Sea Scrolls, we'll talk about that in a very minor way because they do not play a big role in the actual New Testament, but they would have been um, in the background. And, and so some people have associated John the Baptist with the Essenes. We'll talk about that a little bit when we come back um, after Christmas. Any quick questions? Pharisees, Sadducees, Pharisees, Sadducees, and then just a lot of apathy. You would have had a lot of people who just don't pay that much attention to religion. Now, it's not quite, I don't want to paint that in a 21st century mode um, because no time period is exactly the same. There would have been, an average Jew would have been a lot more pious than we say an average United States American. They would have known more about their, their heritage, but yet, there, there would have been a lot of religious apathy at the time of Jesus. And hence, John the Baptist calling everyone to repentance. Yes, Aaron, yes? No. No, no, Sadducees die because when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, there's no, there's, with the Pharisees, they develop, the, as a party, they, they get kind of scattered after the Roman occupation and, and the Roman thing. But what happens with Pharisees is, is they die as a party, but their influence and their theology influences what, we, what, we, what develops into modern-day Judaism. And so if we, if we say some key documents, and I don't want to get into this now, called the Talmud and the Mishnah are basically developed from Pharisee thinking. Okay? Okay, so Pharisee thinking becomes dominant in Judaism, especially with the fall of the temple. It's a great question. And, and again, I do not speak as an expert to Jewish history at all. And, and my knowledge of the Mishnah and the Talmud is, 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 is uh, I pronounce the words and, uh, um, and I don't know great, great knowledge like this and stuff like this. And, um, but, but if you want, I, I will, you know, remind me though to tell you about a couple of the Jewish prayers at the time of Jesus at a later time. Maybe not next time, but just remind me to, so that would give you insight, for example, the book of Galatians, what are some, some prayers of the Jews at the time of Jesus. So, okay, uh, Sunday school program's happening right, right now. If you're going to, to church, we're having mass and, and Sunday school program. God bless all of you, and we'll see you also uh, 4, 6.30, 10.30 on Christmas Eve, 9, 9.30 on Christmas Day.